Blog Talk Radio. Good afternoon, everyone, <clears throat> whoever everyone is. Um, if anybody wanted to uh, sign on to the show and have a discussion with me, the number is 646 716 7756. 646 716 7756. I had hoped somebody else, a couple of people, might show up uh, to engage this very difficult discussion with me. Um, this is Dr. Simon. The show is called The Stories We Live By. And uh, I want to talk today, not easy topic to, to structure and discuss uh, with all kinds of political pitfalls and all kinds of difficulties about the destructive myths of race and intelligence. And anybody who's followed my show, you know that uh, much of the time I discuss the damage being done to individuals and groups and society at large by the destructive myth of mental illness. The idea that unhappiness or confusion or making up stories that are different from the stories that other people live by um, can get you diagnosed as having a mental illness. And more and more, the direction that will take uh, is being drugged Hello? Yes. Uh, hello? Hi, Larry. It's Chuck Ruby. Yeah, hi, Chuck. I just started the show. Um, okay. Glad you can join me. Um, let me say congratulations on the book. Oh, um, thank you. The myth, uh, that's my book, uh, Smoke and Mirrors, How You Are Being Fooled About Mental Illness. And as you know, much of my show and much of what I discuss has to do with how society and individuals are not only being fooled but damaged by yes. believing that that so much of, of uh, unhappiness, confusion, making up stories, as I say, that are different from the stories that other people live by, um, acting in any way that people consider strange or you yourself consider strange, ends mm -hmm. up being called an illness that isn't an illness, because uh, if it was an underlying neurological, biological problem, then it would be a medical illness, a medical problem, and have nothing to do with a mental illness. It's basically mm -hmm. unwanted behavior. And today I just began to talk about the destructive myths of race and intelligence. And <clears throat> very difficult to talk about. Uh, it's sort of a minefield, I think. And I, in fact, I just got a new book. Uh, oh, I, can't, I don't have the title. Called Cast. Uh, it was written up in the Sunday Times, and it has to do with uh, the caste system that was created uh, in in uh, the United States around so-called race. Uh, how black people were really treated in the same way as the author writes about. Jews in Nazi Germany and Germany and much of Europe for about a thousand years and the untouchables in India. Mm -hmm. um, so just let me give me a minute. First of all, race is now a dominant topic in our society and you have to be very careful how you talk about it. Mm -hmm. uh, 
race doesn't really exist as a biological concept. You would agree to that? Yes, it's more phenotypic than genotypic. Yes, it's, in other words, it's, it's appearance. it could be done in our culture. It's done on the basis of skin color. Correct. And a couple of varying, uh, you know, the, the, the kind of hair you have and the shape of your nose. Uh, what's so interesting is that uh, I, I've always been sensitive about this because when the Nazis went after the Jews, mm-hmm. we were all white. We, we didn't have any different real appearances. In fact, many of the German Jews for the last century before the Holocaust uh, practiced their Sabbath on Sunday so that they would fit in with German mm-hmm. society. Many of them considered themselves German before being Jewish in the same way that in the United States, many Jews considered themselves American before mm-hmm. Jewish. And yet, they were labeled a deviant, dangerous, inferior race, and that was the justification for their slaughter. Mm-hmm. Here, we now have uh, a based on color. And I have written about, and, and what I argue is that the best way for a person to be controlled by authoritarian figures is to be convinced that their identity is inferior. Mm-hmm. So that when they say, I am something, I am evil, I am mentally ill, I am black, I am Jewish, I am whatever it happens to be, I am inferior. At that point, I think you're trapped, and there's really no way out of the trap. The only way out is to somehow understand that your identity, psychological identity, is not made up of nouns but of verbs. It's what you do. I think, I feel, I love, I hate, I write, I walk. I do all of the things that define me that way as a human being. And since race doesn't actually exist, uh, all human beings on this planet are one species, and there really is no problem from anybody anywhere in the world having children with anybody else any place in the world, and we have seen that in the United States to a large degree. So that what I want to talk about is this terrible myth that now has taken over the society, that what the argument now is, black people are as good as white people. We're not inferior, we're as good. I wish there had been a a, a, a Jewish movement in Europe where people would say Jews are as good instead of being rats, seen as rats. Mm-hmm. And there is this tremendous argument now, which I think is necessary in many ways, in which the definition of one's race or religion or political party now takes place before you're a human being. I am first and foremost in my identity, I hope, a human being. And I don't see any way out of that except that shift in thinking. What do you say? 
Yeah, it it, it is an, uh, a difficult uh, challenge for us because you're right. We are first and foremost humans, and that we share that genetically with everybody. Uh, and interestingly, we share a lot of that genetic makeup with other primates too. But this species, um, our species, is gen- we're all genetically human beings. The the differences that we identify are um, I, I'm not sure if it's if it's just a natural thing we do that we distinct, we discriminate among different appearing people, not only visual appearance but different interests and and basically those different categories are how we try to put people in boxes because of their diversity on a lot of different levels, not just race or gender yeah, or see, I think it interest comes from, or religion or yeah it, and it. I think it's based I wonder on whether they're really categories. They're more dimensional. Well, we make things. up the categories. I think yeah. that what happened, we, we really, I, you know, I discussed that in my book at length. Well, I don't discuss anything in my book at length, but, but given the, the, the book, it's at length, that we evolved and formed off, uh, we were saved from extinction by forming tribes. Mm-hmm. And the right. tribes became hierarchical. And then when you added religion, there's a man in the sky, and you have to be obedient to the man in the sky. We now had a hierarchy because the people who spoke for and about the man in the sky were now superior to everybody below. And it, all the trouble, it seems to me, happens when people don't integrate into a larger tribe. And for a while, I think I always believe the United States may have achieved that. Right, it was the idea was that the melting pot, where it it allowed different peoples come together and become part of yeah. one, but it it never really solidified, I guess. Right, it, over it became, certain kinds of differences. I mean, there are some differences that are seen as more inferior than others. Right, um, I think you did a good job in your book of, of pointing that out and 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 talking in the you know, postmodern view of uh, the narrative constructions that have built around those uh, different ways of thinking uh, and how those narratives separate us a lot. But it is largely uh, image-based. I know, you know, what do you do about, like, Barack Obama? Um, he's uh, he's a, a mixture of different races, yet he's considered black because of appearance. There are other people who are considered white, even though they may have uh, a large portion of their ancestry from African countries. Right. Um, so it shows you that the, the this this distinction is a an illusory one, and it's purely based on image. Yes, and and, and it sustains it sustains an economic structure. Yeah. Because, you know, we freed the slaves, or, or, you know, the slaves were freed in 1863, I think it was. Um, but, but, but the idea of anybody of any color, you know, it's interesting that uh, for Hitler, if you were less than one sixteenth Jewish, you could pass mm-hmm. for Aryan. Mm-hmm. In the United States, you could be one millionth of color. Anywhere, go all the way back into your genetic history, if anybody was of color, 
you're black. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, and, and there it, is but, no cutoff for it. Yeah, so but it's there is really no, a monstrous um, kind of a thing. You know, what color? Uh, there there it, are it, people well, Usually color. it's brown. Yeah. Um, yellow, by the way, there is discrimination against people of yellow. Uh, people of red skin, uh, mm-hmm. we nearly wiped out Tylee. Right. I mean, you know, well, I was raised, I'm sure you were raised, on the cowboy movies about the mm-hmm. great settlers went west, and there right. was nobody there. <laughs> so mm-hmm. they settled the west, except they had to get rid of the savages. Right. I mean, it, it, it's so built into history, uh, and it has to be recognized. The other part of this discussion has to do with intelligence. Mm-hmm. Because the idea of intelligence, I think of in many ways as destructive or even more destructive than the myth of race. Because what we have done, and psychologists, we have so much to answer for, no matter how much good we do. Excuse me, I have to drink some water. Because we take our tests and our values and we superimpose them on, on the entire population and make these pronouncements that if you don't do well on these tests, that somehow they measure something independently of how you function in any area of your life, and you really mm-hmm. can't go very far if you don't have the, the right test score, mm-hmm. the access to education, the access to jobs, and that is built into the myth of race. Do you remember Hernstein and what was his, the other guy's name? I'm having trouble remembering anything today. Murray. No, I'm not Charles sure. Charles Murray. About the, the, the effect of, or the different, um, oh the gosh, different racial, racial IQs. IQ. Yeah. yeah. Right. That Asians, people of yellow skin of, from Asia, have the highest racial IQ. Mm-hmm. Whites have next, and blacks have the least. And that's so baked in to the educational system. And it's a cake that really, I don't know how you get rid of that cake. Right. The and myth, it's only reflecting, um, well, there are a lot of cultural biases involved in the tests themselves. Um, of course. And, and that are behind that difference in IQs, but it's also... Um, not just access to certain cultures, but certain cultures value education more than others. I mean, everything varies on a scale. So if you group anything into groups, there's going to be differences between the averages of those groups. Right. And and a lot of it has nothing to do with something that's inherent called intelligence. Well, well, take somebody, you know, I knew a lot of people in my life who uh, were very successful, but really never did well in school. And if they took an IQ test, they were barely average on the IQ. Mm -hmm. But they had enormous social skills. They had an understanding of the market. Or right now, if I could redo my life, I might come back as an athlete, a golfer. Mm -hmm. Nobody asks, what's the IQ of a golfer? Guy stands, and I know a lot of good golfers. They look at the green, and they could read a green. They know exactly where to hit the ball so it goes to the hole. I could, can't read a, a 
a green. I'm dyslexic, green dyslexic. <laughs> right? mm-hmm. Who says that the skill anybody has to live a successful life should be compared to the concept that we have as intellectuals of IQ? Right. I think it's just, I think it's awful. Right. Well, I, an IQ test is biased toward academic work. Um, so an IQ test, as you know, doesn't measure artistic skills. It doesn't measure athletic skills. It doesn't measure dancing, uh, social music, skills? any of those or social skills. Right. It's it's strictly a measure of academic readiness, if you will, that it can give you a rough prediction of how well someone will do in the classical academic fields like yes. math and yeah. reading and things like that. Um, but yeah, it doesn't. It doesn't have anything at all to do with all those other areas. Right. And it's, so, so, so it's unfortunate if someone gets tested and, and they, they show low on the academic scale and they are tagged for life. They might even be diagnosed as something. Yes. yes. Oh, yeah. Well, today, you don't do well in school. Not only is your IQ score going to affect, but you're going to have a learning disability, attention mm-hmm. deficit, hyperactivity disorder. We have a pill yeah. for, for, for everything. Now, part of this also that I wanted to add into the conversation has to do with labels, all kinds of labels that people can attach to themselves. Mm-hmm. And the labels that, that are now being thrown around are so incredibly destructive because once the individual is perceived socially, and defined, the essential essence of self is defined in a certain way, you now have terrible social consequences. So if I say the wrong thing about the Me Too movement, I can be labeled a sexist. Mm -hmm. If I say the wrong thing about Black Lives Matter, and by the way, completely support the idea behind Black Lives Matter. Mm-hmm. I'm a racist. The labels That's are good. being thrown around, Chuck, so that people are defined. And if you say that somebody is a racist, or if I don't like gay people, I'm homophobic. Mm-hmm. It implies I have always been racist. I am racist now. And no matter how I try to change my behavior, I'll be racist in the future. The same thing you and I constantly deal with when we have somebody who comes to us for help and says, I am a schizophrenic. Mm -hmm. Well, you want to say you behave schizophrenically because it's all verbs. So it's what you're doing that gets you labeled schizophrenic. It's not noun. It's a verb. Mm -hmm. You're trapped. Yeah, the system you are does always a you. schizophrenic, you're a schizophrenic now, and you're going to be a schizophrenic for the rest of your existence. Mm-hmm. If you first buy into that. If you buy into that. Well, how many right. people are buying into all of this? Lots. Right. And but the, uh, those other labels are just like level. that. Hmm? Those other labels, even the non-diagnostic uh, labels, they're the very same way. They're... If I say you're an extrovert, um, all that means is I'm, I'm labeling what you tend to do. I'm not labeling something about your, you physiologically or defectively that makes you an extrovert. It's just right. 
what you have done it doesn't mean you're ever going to, you're never going to do an introvert thing. It just means that you most of the time you enjoy being with people and yes. being gregarious. You know, you bring up something, a memory I haven't had in a long time. When I was in graduate school, there were more studies done on field independence and field dependence. Hmm. I think that may be before your time. Oh, I think I really so. Do. Huh? Yes. I think I'm about it was clear years behind if you were so. field independent, mm-hmm. you were a better person than if you were field dependent. Mm. And if you looked at the labels given in the research, the people who were field dependent, and I don't remember them all, but it was so clear. It was another hierarchical system where mm-hmm. you hoped that you would do well on the test because there was a test for field independence, and you didn't come out to be field-dependent. In other words, when you were shown a picture, can you pull out embedded figures easily? Right. Or could you not pull out the embedded figures? And I can't even remember what it actually would do as an issue to change your life for better or for worse, whether you were dependent and independent on the way you handled a complex visual design. But there it was. Yeah, the thing that bothers me the most about that kind of thing is it always comes down to, so we have these differences among people, diversity in, in any domain, but it always comes down to some value judgment about which one's better than, which right. one's good, which one's bad, and right. that's always based on a moral decision. It it's, right. has nothing to do with any kind of science. It's the the, the the diversity is about science, but the value judgment placed on those things yes. um, is a moral judgment. I, so field dependent versus field independence, one is considered better than. Well, that's yes. only based on someone's idea of what's more appropriate. That's right. Not right. what, you know, it's not what is practically beneficial. But you see, what bothers like me about that and much <clears throat> about what goes on in our field, and I say our field because... I, I'm really not part of the field specifically anymore the way I used to be. Mm-hmm. It's how many value judgments are so built in to what's supposed to be science. Oh, right. Yeah. Uh, I the loved your book, by the way. Let me, take, let me talk about your book for a second. Okay. Because you do a demolition job on the idea of mental illness and all of its surrounding concepts, that is as good or better than anything I've ever seen. And now the question is, how does that, how do we take your book, and I believe my book does a fairly decent job of that too, it does. And, make it, and make it part of um, the field in a way that has real meaning so that we become really more, able to differentiate between people as human beings in terms of the way they actually live rather than these horrendous, horrendous labels. Right. That's a tough question. And we better do it soon, don't you think? Oh, absolutely. But it's tough. It's, 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 uh, the industry is such that it's funded well by people who have a vested interest in seeing it continue on as it is. And so, we don't have individually. We don't have the money to fight against that. The way I try to do it is where the rubber meets the road. When I try to help people, I do it there with those people. So it's like one person at a time. Mm-hmm. Um, 
publishing a book is one way to get the word out, uh, but it's such a, a radical idea that uh, it's, it's going it's, to be looked it's, at. And it's, by the way, it's the, what's radical is the idea of mental illness and the idea of race. Those are mm-hmm. radical from a, to me from a human perspective. The problem is they're what's usual. Yes. They're, they're sort of the water we all swim around in. Um, exactly. And again, you know, I, I, I get very upset and hopeless sometimes, especially when I see what's going on now politically in the society in which the entire medical establishment is under attack as taking away people's freedoms uh, right. uh, if they want to stop a dread disease. That I never and thought I'd live to see. Right, and it's difficult to 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 counter that problem because, you know, we want people to think critically about it, important issues like this coronavirus, um, to 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 know how to find out information that's credible, mm-hmm. um, not just to trust in what one person or two people or even an industry says, but to look for yourself. The problem yes. is most people don't want to invest the time and the and the difficulty that it requires to find out good information, uh, to to come to the place where you admit you don't know everything because we don't, and and that makes it frightening when we don't know a lot. Right. Um, but that to find out what we can know and the credibility of sources and the and logic I always go back reasoning. to education. Exactly. Uh, when I look at the people, the people who are being attacked for not wearing the mask, uh, mm-hmm. and I look at it from a point of view not of critical of them as human beings, many of them really have been left behind. Uh, I had a long conversation with my brother, who is a in- very interesting guy. He designs lighting systems and machinery. And he says, the machine has to be constantly fed in this country. And we've taken away all the machines that people used to work on. And they didn't have good educations. Education, as you and I would value it or see it, were not really part of that culture. And we talked about it yesterday for about an hour. They've been left behind. They're frightened. They're angry. And now along comes... Mr. Whose Name I Won't Mention, Mm -hmm. and he tells them they're really the victims and they really have no responsibility in this, and and it's the doctors and the elites who are the problem, and (laughs) there's a mess here. There's a mess here. Well, the paradox is when when you set up a system that encourages distrust in information it requires that you trust somebody then that's for the information and so that's the paradox instead of you know don't believe what you read believe what i say you fall prey to that kind of a a encouragement and that's dangerous that's a dangerous shift the citizenry and going away from finding out for themselves and asking the tough questions demanding evidence because it's so hard and so confusing and so scary, it's it's easy 
And it's tempting right. to just say, throw your hands up and say, well, I'm just going to trust in what this That's right, says, this I have person to. says. Right. right. Listen, he was mm-hmm. a celebrity and he made a billion dollars, which probably didn't, but that's mm-hmm. not the point. Um, right. How many of the people you've worked with in your career were raised in a family system in which, who are you going to believe, me or your own eyes? Yeah, oh, yeah, yeah. I remember hearing that, too. And, and after a while, you just... You realize the, the job you have in front of them, of yourself, to help them believe their own eyes, and believe the memories they've had. Um, but see that, Larry, that requires though that people remain with that fear of the unknown, uh, the uncertainty, because it's it feels comforting to think of a person or a group as knowing it all and just trusting in that what they say. That there's a sense of comfort in that. Um, it's hard when you don't do that and you are on your own trying to discover information because you're always left with this this gap of uncertainty. That Absolutely. There's a lot I don't know, but there's a lot I do know. And yes. it's tempting to fill that gap up with alarming theories. Yes. You know, you never hear a conspiracy As, theory that isn't alarming. It's always alarming. Well, by the way, most of what people believe, I believe, you know, I I see much of religion as a conspiracy, a set of conspiracy theories. Mm-hmm. And and we're never going to get human beings to give up religion. The right. idea that there is a force out there and that if you listen to what that force says, it's your only way of getting through and especially of living beyond your own death. What an mm-hmm. incredibly powerful idea that oh, is. Absolutely. And I wouldn't try to counter it in anybody. Yeah. But it's all set up that way. I have to believe what I am told, not what I experience. Uh, it's only when you and I do this professionally or I see our colleagues do this uh, that I get really upset because that's where your book is directed and where my book is directed. And... and, and you know, it has to start right. somewhere. Where well, we start a, there telling is a tendency, people, a, a temptation to take what we do know and extrapolate. So, so oh, for yes. instance, we know there's shenanigans ongoing between the FDA, drug companies, CDC. There's there's conflicts of interest always there, and that has led in the past to drugs bring, being brought to market inappropriately. But because we know that, it doesn't mean we must assume that future drugs being brought to market are going to be that way. It's just they're just at risk of being that way, right? So, like a vaccine for COVID, if it comes out really soon, I would question it because it just hasn't gone through the safety and effectiveness testing. Yeah, that, that'll be a must. That, yeah, take you should take about a year, uh, except that this at has least. never happened before. I where the entire medical establishment years. is trying to produce a vaccine. Um, right. yeah. it, it, for me, it would be a real conflict not to take it because mm-hmm. I'm at a point, I'm 80 years old, and I'm slowly, mm-hmm. and some areas not so slowly, deteriorating. And mm-hmm. the thought that I could be locked here in my house for another year mm-hmm. where every day is the same is really a very scary a scary proposition because oh, yeah, right. that's yeah, what's that's happening here. We've, yeah, it's a tough decision, and you know, I have I have some conditions that make me at risk, higher risk uh, of uh, bad things if I got contracted this virus. And so I wonder, you know, what would my decision be? Um, it just it makes it difficult. 
because yeah. it's being rushed through. And we know that in the past there have been some things happened that were that negatively well, affected the outcome of the quality. Well, you and I both are familiar with Jim Gottstein's and his mm-hmm. book, the Zyprexa Papers. Yes. Um, you know, you read that and you wonder, what medication can I ever take? Exactly. <laughs> that big pharma produces. Uh, well, to I, me, no, I like once to the drug has been around a long time, yeah. and I trust I like my to... doctor, they know. Uh-huh. After a while, they know. Yeah, I, I separate out psychiatric drugs from everything else only because psychiatric yeah, drugs have no benefit. They only have harm. That's uh, right. Unless you want the sedation from them. The other things have some kind of benefit. So an antibiotic can kill bacteria that can be harmful. There's also side effects of it, but it has some benefit. Not all drugs, but non-psychiatric drugs can have some benefit to them. All of them can be dangerous. Well, I've been taking some for 20, 30 years. So yeah, right. Since I'm still here, I assume they must have some benefit. Well, I take um, I take um, a, a proton pump inhibitor because of you know GERD, gastric reflux, and there's the danger to taking that as long as I've been taking it. It it, it prevents mineral absorption and other things, yeah. but the pain if I don't take it is just overwhelming. So I'm stuck with the decision. You know. Well, I've been taking um, it now for about 15 years, mm-hmm. and. They have already. I don't get heartburn, but they still they don't work like they used to. No, and I have tried to go off them. I don't know if you've ever tried to come off them. Oh yeah, yeah. It's oh, hard. it's it's a bloody fight. I usually don't it, take them unless I'm going to eat a lot or if I'm going to drink something. I'll I'll take them yeah. that morning because oh, if it, I don't, just and a then very I overdo thing. it. Yeah. Yeah, that's a hard habit to break. Yeah. Anyway, uh, it's a pleasure to talk with you. Yeah, Larry's I'm not sure what we're going to solve here today. <laughs> Probably nothing um, today. Yeah, but I think that, you know, just to reiterate, I think that I'd like to see the myth of race disappear. Mm-hmm. I think I'd like to see the myth that our intelligence tests really determine anything uh, other than a set of skills that work in a specific area. And they mm-hmm. don't measure a whole wide variety of, of skills. Uh, we had a flood in our house three years ago. We didn't know that a hot water pipe, a stainless hot water, a stainless pipe in the hot water section of the, of the dishwasher had rusted and leaked. Now, ask me how the stainless steel pipe leaked. Right. We won't know. Uh, the whole house had to be, the walls had to be cut we had to be demolded. It was a, a real, mm. real, a, a real nightmare. And the house, we got a, a terrific contractor. Uh, I really should call him and find out how he is. He was wonderful. And he brought in people to redo the kitchen that we needed to have done. And he was an artist. Every one mm-hmm. of the people he came in loved what they did. Every one of them was friendly and open. Every one of them was successful in the area that they were working in. Every one of them barely graduated high school, and every one of them was married and seemed to be happy in their marriage, and every one of them was voting for Trump. 
Right. Now, no one's going to tell me what their IQ test meant in terms of their living a successful life. Right. They were yeah, intelligent. They, interesting. It's interesting you give that example. We had the exact same problem, but it was a sewage uh, backup through a toilet. And uh, it was in, it was amazing how skilled they these people came in and <clears throat> tore out walls and flooring and carpet and exactly and repaired everything and it was like an art form and 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 while they did it they were the most pleasant people um i'd ever met doing yes. something like and you that. don't meet them in our life <laughs> no it's a wonderful you know? thing when you do meet them and you take yes. note of that you know and one of the guys was painting he had a paint uh, a window frame and I said, when I do that, I have to put a lot of tape around the window and I still get the paint. And he said, that's because when I paint, there's the brush, which is a part of my arm, and I'm there. Mm-hmm. When you paint, your mind is anywhere but where you're painting. Yeah, because you don't want and to I be thought, there. How is that <laughs> for an insight? <laughs> right. That sounds like a very Zen thing. Uh, it's Zen, it's yes, yes. Fully yes. present, and and you know you are yes. what you're doing. You play golf? I used to until I got too serious about it and started throwing clubs, so I quit. That was a long time. That's because you you weren't Zen. Uh, you're right, exactly. You have and to be the mo- there and no place else. Right. <laughs> anyway, I'm going to play golf about... tomorrow morning for nine holes until the heat gets yeah. too much. Uh, and that's that's what I look forward to at this point. And I that's love good. talking with you today. I usually do. Yeah. And let's uh, hope we can sell a million copies of your book. And yours, too. Yes. I think I need some help, Chuck, selling it. Okay. I'm not sure. I need a lot of people to, ask, to say really good things to... about it if they think it's good. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, I'll tell you, I think the key is, uh, especially since we're self-publishing, um, is to use social media. That's the way to advertise these days, uh, the most cost-effective way. <clears throat> now, certainly we can hire marketing specialists to do other things, but I think social media is a big part of it. Yeah, well, I've gotten very good at making ads in my book. Mm-hmm. Um and putting it in to my friends and then the public. And somehow that doesn't really seem to generate a lot of sales. I use mm. Twitter to a certain mm-hmm. degree, but that, that's, that, you know. Yeah, you have to have a, you, in using social media, there's a strategy on how to do it. I've, I've hired um, a social media expert to do our ISEP, uh, Facebook and Twitter accounts. And, and we have two other volunteers that are, are doing the actual legwork. But basically what you want to do is identify people like you and follow or or like them, you know, connect with them. And that way when you p- publish something, it goes to their networks also, and it just propagates uh-huh. out. But That's it takes a lot of work to do that. Yeah, it takes a it lot does. of work to do that. Yeah, right now – I'm getting every day five, six, ten friends asking, you know, friend requests, mm-hmm. all from Israel. Wow. And I cannot figure out for the life of me why. Hmm. 
uh, in fact, I think I just thought of something. I'm going to try to contact some of those friends and say, why did they be befriend yeah, me? Right, they'll tell you. Yeah, that's just so interesting. Anyway. Yeah. Um, All right. I'll say good afternoon. Yep. Thank Hope you for joining me. Yeah, you're welcome. Take Let care. me know about the next one. About the next what? Show? Yeah. Yeah. I'll probably do one next week. Um, okay. Yeah, by the way, there was something else I wanted to say to you. Oh, I wrote an article and submitted it for publication for the special issue of EHPP. Right. I really like it. It's sort of a synthesis of my book in some ways. But okay. I added stuff. I've, actually, if I look, look at my book now, I really need to do a revised version, which okay. I won't do unless I can sell enough copies to make some kind of a market for it. Mm-hmm. Uh, it would be just silly. It would just be ego and nothing else. Um, mm-hmm. But are you intending to write one? I wanted to, yeah. I, did, I, I just recently asked uh, the editor-in-chief, Jackie Sparks, if it was if it was actually on that we were going to do it, and apparently, yeah, I was misunderstanding. Yeah, well, she sent out a request it, for papers, and yeah, I think it's going to be I, yeah, a I do want to put something. Anything. Yeah, I'd like to put something together, in particular, something focused on the. Uh, yeah. I don't know. It could be anything within my book, but especially that chapter twelve about um, brain and mind. Uh, that issue, it's more of a philosophical issue, but right, uh, right, yeah, that's why I, I think wanted. it needs some philosophical. You know what? I, I'll say, you know, I don't want to burden you with any more of my reading. Um, <laughs> I don't want to put anything on your plate, but I can send you. She said I I was going to post it, the article to ISEPP. She said, mm-hmm. "Don't do that. It could probably have, make problems for it being published." Yeah, I heard. But I saw she that, doesn't yeah. think it can be published in a year, at least a year. Mm-hmm. And at this point, I think I'll make a year, but I have no guarantee of it. My mind really, at this point, uh, starts to think about time in a different way than I've ever thought about it before. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm going to send it to you. I can post it to you. And if yeah, you get just, a chance, you can, you can look at it. I'll take a look. Yeah. And, and I hope I hear from you about my book. Yeah, I'm going to write a review of yours for the HPP. Um, oh, that'd be great. I'd I'm about that. halfway through it right now. Oh, that's wonderful. You'll send me a copy then. Of the review? Of the review. Sure. Yeah. Okay. But, it'll, but it'll, they'll post it in the, you know, they'll have it in the edition of the HPP. Yeah, I don't know I which know. one. Yeah. yeah you know, you know sure, how many I'd... people read, you know how many people read EHPP? Uh, I do not. It has, a, it has a, a, a follower of 400 people. Oh, it's advertised. I looked it up on on the Springer. Uh, mm-hmm. We got to do something about that. How many people uh, yeah, in that's... ISEPP? Oh, there's only about 150, maybe. That's um, cool. It's always it's always been that ever since ever since Bregan. Well, when Bregan started it back in the 90s, when he really you know went hard on it, there were a lot of um, there were more people, but there were people that were following him. And then when he left in 2010, I think it was, um, a lot of, you know, the membership dwindled quite a bit. Yeah. And, yeah, it was too yeah it's bad. always been it was around that, that amount, it, back and forth. And so it's yeah. always been a small organization. And we're, we're, the board of directors talk about this all the time. And one of the problems is we don't have a lot, enough people that are willing to take on the role, say, of a, of a, a hard-pushing membership director to, to 
to do something to try to do something about this. Uh, we've just within the last four years, three years maybe, started leveraging social media to try to get the word out about our organization because there's a lot of people out there that don't even know about us, and when they find right. out, they join. Well, there are a lot of people who are going to learn about it through this broadcast. I hope because so. Because yeah. I, I have people following me, not a lot of people, but I have in Spain, uh, mm-hmm. in Great Britain, mm-hmm. um, other parts of Europe. Uh, mm-hmm. They come and go, but I have some, some followers, and I'm going to ask them if they hear this to join ISEPP. And yeah, spread and the talk word. Talk about us on social media. You know, yes. Post yeah. something about the organization. They can go to our website and find out about it. It's um, either psychintegrity.org or icep.com. Either one will get you there. Okay. Um, yeah, and then uh, and you can go to my website too. It's chuckruby.com. Uh, yeah, I to, just posted it on this on okay. my on, on my uh, blog. Yeah, and there's I was going to post uh, the, the the URL for your book at at, uh, uh, at Amazon. That's like three pages long. <laughs> yeah, I noticed that. <laughs> yeah, all you have to do but is they, put yeah, they down... can click on the book on my website. Yeah. All right. Take it easy. All right, Scott. Larry. Take Good care. Good to talk to you. Bye. Yeah. Goodbye.